the sun and the moon had a child. Their joining was the first eclipse, and their passion burned the sky and the eyes of mortals. Their child was silver and gold, not quite dark, a little less than light. Entire worlds exist across her back, traversed by beings that should not be. She has many names, Twilight, Gloom, Eventide. I know her as Isolde. From Elderblade Productions, this is Echoes of Exesar, Episode 2, The Ebon Mist. Inside the gate I was transported. My body did not move. Instead, the tunnel of twisting shadows passed all around me at a screaming pace. There was no wind, nor indeed any air. I couldn't breathe. There was no feeling on my skin, except for a bitter cold. It was what I imagined death is like. I heard the sounds of Exesar, a cacophony of echoes. Merchants trading in city squares, slapping waves on jutting beach crags, horses whinnying on winding roads, rocks falling, babies crying, lightning strikes, whispers between lovers, alleyway dealers, the elderly on their deathbeds. The inky black tunnel spun and congealed. In the distance, I saw a pinprick of gray light amidst the black. Its rays pierced the shadows like rapiers, and the light spread, consuming the darkness and myself until... Abruptly, I was thrown out of the tunnel. I stumbled, nearly dropping Eleanor Liger's body. Gasping for breath, I looked behind me. The shadow tunnel had disappeared. Only the door remained. It looked exactly as it had in the Rika Marsh. But I was someplace else entirely. Stark, gray sunlight hung low on the horizon. A vast, even plain greeted me, spotted for miles with doors just like the one I had stepped through, sticking out of the hard-packed ground like tombstones. Storm clouds smothered the sky, and a black mist choked my vision. Thunder rolled lowly overhead. Sprouted all across the plain were dead cedar trees that glowed bright white. They smelled of spice and fungi. I took a few steps, searching the horizon. I called out. Hello! Hello. Silence followed. I walked through the mist weaving through the forest of glowing trees and stone doors. 
Eventually the trees became more dense, and I found myself in a forest of faint light suppressed by the mist. A glint caught my eye. Above me was a white-faced owl. It watched me soundlessly. Then it cocked its head sideways, as if questioning the body I carried on my shoulders. It's a long story, I said. The owl hooted, pecked at the inside of its wing, then took off flying. It disappeared beyond the veil of the mist. I shrugged under the weight of Miss Liker's body, took a few more steps. Then, well, let's hear it. I turned around. Leaning against the nearby cedar was a woman. Tall, human, middle-aged, with messy hair white as the cedars. She wore sheepskin and hemp, roughly hewn into a jerkin, skirt, and boots. A necklace made of owl bones hung on her neck. She stared at me, unblinking, with round, yellow eyes that were twice as large as they should be. I groaned, kneeling to set Miss Liger's body down. Do you really need to do that every time, Isolde? Isolde approached the body, staring it down. Your handiwork? No. A victim. Eleanor Liger of Grey Sky. Cause of death? Unknown. I believe it was kindred. Isolde considered my words a moment, her face inscrutable. Then she said, Quinn will examine her. She snapped her fingers. A swarm of roots erupted from the ground around Miss Liker's body, enveloped her and pulled her into the earth. Dirt filled the hole of its own accord, and in moments it was as if she'd never been there at all. Isolde gestured for me to follow her. I obliged walking with her aimlessly through the forest. I recounted my story. Tosca and her cult of Scalos, Grey Sky's people cursed with nightmares and sleeplessness, the unconscious guards and Miss Liger's apparent possession. By the time I had finished, we had come upon a grove, circled by a dense collective of cedars with intertwining roots and branches. Their combined light made it seem almost like daytime. Within the grove there were chairs, tables, hutches filled with liquor and glasses. A great marbled stone waterfall stood at the far end of the grove, its clear water shimmering like cool silver against the light of the trees, landing in a wide crescent pool below. Everwake, Isolde replied pulling a bottle of wine and a pair of glasses from the hutch. I took a seat opposite her. Does that name mean anything to you? Isolde shook her head, popping the cork on the bottle with a grunt. She poured liberally into each glass. You mentioned Miss Liger was researching the Urso. She had a book on the subject, yes, along with this. I brandished the carved stick I had recovered from inside the book's cover. I started to bring it to Isolde. Without looking, she flicked her wrist at me. An unseen force ripped the stick from my hand, pulling it across the grove to Isolde. Masking my slight surprise, I sat down again. Isolde inspected the stick in her hands. A moment later, she said, 
It's a chip. Pardon? Isolde flicked her wrist again. A full glass of wine sped towards me. I barely caught it. The wine inside did not spill. Alzarian tinkering, Isolde explained. They used chips like these to carry information. Something this size could hold entire libraries inside. But that's... I stopped. I wanted to say impossible. But I would have been saying it inside a magical forest of teleporting doors to a woman who could turn into owls and move things with her mind. What I chose to say instead was, Did they use frights to do it? The question made his old bristle. No. My people were not involved with this, unlike many Alzarian deviations. The science behind this contraption has been lost to time, though there may well remain something out there that can read it. She took a sip of her wine. Did anyone know this woman? It's Grey Sky. No one knows anyone there. I sipped my wine. A full-bodied Merlot with hints of chocolate. You said she worshipped the Alzarians? She worshipped the Five of Aden. Isolde laughed. Same thing. <laughs> How quickly the names change. Anything else? There was a book on the Sundering. The end of the Alzarians. Hmm. And I assume our dear friend Tosca knew nothing. I tensed, knowing what was coming. As far as I could tell, she was as mystified as the rest. Isolde cocked her head to the side and smiled a sickly sweet smile. I'm sure that's just what she wanted you to think. I smiled back, trying not to give any tells. Isolde was very good at reading me, perhaps because she never seemed to blink. Yes, well, we won't know for sure. She's long gone by now, I suspect. Because you let her get away. No choice. She called on us for aid. I brought my glass to my lips. I couldn't harm her. I was soul-bound to... The glass jerked out of my hands, floating just out of my reach. This time the wine did spill, onto the sleeve of my silk shirt. Isolde's mouth still smiled at me, but not her eyes. Cut the shit, Vondere. Our contract doesn't work that way, and you know it. I stared back at her with a measured calmness. She was right. The Amnesty Clause protected common criminals for the purpose of triage. If a lowly thief calls on us for help to deal with a greater crisis, it makes sense not to kill him on sight. For those like Tosca, however, who have had dealings with powers not of this world, it was a different story. I rose, retrieving a handkerchief from the inside of my jerkin and crossed to the fountain. Tosca may be a con artist, but she's not a killer. She is kin. That is our only concern. She was kin, I corrected. I knelt at the pool in front of the fountain, wetted my handkerchief, and dabbed at the stain on my sleeve. 
She bound herself to a fright so that she could do parlor tricks. Petty illusions, disguises. She gave it up when she joined the Miraculous Four in Mira. No one gives up that kind of power forever. Sometimes they do. If they have the choice, I shot Isolde a look. Isolde squinted at me, bringing her wine glass to her lips. Careful, Vondere. Isolde snapped her fingers. A bubbling sound pulled my attention back to the pool. A series of small bubbles were floating up from deep inside. I peered down and noticed a circle of dark mass swirling, settling into a semi-solid form, and rising. I backed away as a black-green clump rose up from the pool. As it rose, I realized it was seaweed made to look like a head of hair attached to a featureless golem sculpted out of pure water. Its body was clothed in algae, messily shaped in the form of a tunic and trousers. The golem gripped the pool's edge and pushed itself up to its knees. It knelt in the center of the pool, motionless. You had a choice too, as I recall. Isolde stepped towards the pool. She flicked her wrist at the golem, the water comprising its face swirled and bubbled, settling into a striking likeness of myself. A round face with deep-set brown eyes, a straight, longish nose, a cleft chin, and a wide, thin mouth with dimples. The seaweed and algae formed unkempt black hair and a kind of goatee. It even showed the small indent in my forehead, a chunk of skin missing from a rock kicked up by a passing horse buggy. This was not, of course, the face I have now. The magic of the ebon mist prevents me or anyone else from describing it to this day. It's just as well, though. I would prefer this version of me be remembered. You came to me a desperate man. You found one of my doors. You knelt before it like an altar. You put gunpowder on your arm in the form of my symbol and set it ablaze with a match. For three days you stayed with no food or water. You were very nearly dead by the end, but you never complained never screamed or wailed. You simply said the words. I am your blade to be wielded. My doppelganger spoke suddenly. I am your arrow to be aimed. I am your enemy's last breath. I am your phantom in the mist. I am yours. My breath halted. For three straight days I had said nothing but that, over and over and over. Those words were woven into the fabric of my mind. Hearing them again put me right back there. My sleep-deprived head pressing on the cold stone of the door, sprawled out in the dirt, too weak to stand, desperate, lost. A burning guilt in the pit of my stomach 
hotter than my hunger. A frenzied yearning to make it right, more cloying than my thirst. I do not remember where I found the door, how I learned those words, or what compelled me to speak them. All I have are the echoes. Laughter, footsteps in mud, the clattering of wooden spoons on dinner plates, a woman's sweet voice, a child playing, a heavy knock on a door, confused murmurs, the door opens, a low, silken voice in the rain, panicked gasping, metal escaping a sheath, feet pounding, tables and chairs turning over, dishes crashing, a pained struggle between two men, one of them falls with a cry, begging, a child's cries, rasping, dragging on the floor. The silken voice sings a melody as a blade drags across the floor. A fearful conversation. The melody grows louder, more begging. The metal swings, bodies fall, screams, melody. blinked, and noticed my eyes had welled with tears. My face felt hot, my hands shaking. I looked at Isolde, who stared me down beside my doppelganger. Was it my imagination, or was there a sliver of pity in her owlish eyes? Please... I said to Isolde, Please, let me see them. Let me know their names. I can't, Isolde said. They were so far gone by the time you found me. Even for my power, it was quite a toll to bring them back. Kindred magic requires a balance, a payment equal to the task. The only payment strong enough to buy your loved ones' lives was my memory of them, I finished. But how do I even know it worked? How can I be assured of their safety if I don't even remember what they looked like? At this, Isolde's expression grew grave. She closed in on me. There is no proof I can give. I can only remind you that if you renege on our contract, the terms will be dissolved. They will die, and your memory of them will flood back to you as though you were living through it all again. She handed me the Alzarian chip. It is your choice alone, as always. Her words disturbed me. It was not a threat. Someone like Isolde didn't need to growl, coerce, or raise her voice. 
She was merely informing me of the consequences, cautioning me. One could almost think it kind, a cold kindness, more chilling than a thousand threats could ever be. If it wasn't the truth, it played the part too damn well. Wiping my eyes, I took the chip from her hands. I am yours, Isolde. Good. Then go visit Quinn and see if she's discovered anything useful. Find Everwake. Take care of it before it becomes a problem. And Von Der, I trust that the next time you cross paths with someone like Tosca, you'll do the right thing. Isolde snapped her fingers again. My doppelganger burst. I jumped, watching the water, seaweed, and algae collapse back into the pool. I turned back to Isolde, only to find that she was no longer there. I was alone, accompanied only by the rolling thunderclouds overhead and the even splashing of the fountain. Somewhere within the forest, I heard the single hoot of an owl. I shuddered, feeling foolish. I was never alone in the ebon mist. Isolde had many contractors working for her. Some were temporary, bit players, if you will, while others had been her kin for centuries. Not all of them were conscripted, either. A few willingly chose to bind their souls to her. They were free to leave at any time, and sometimes they did. Freelancers, I called to them. Of all the freelancers I'd met, none were as loyal as Quinn. Quinn was a jack-of-all-trades. Being kin to his old meant her lifespan had been extended by the magic of the mist. This allowed for a great number of trades for her to pick up. Smithing, enchanting, medicine. She'd even dabbled in some Alzarian science when she'd had the chance. If anyone could glean anything more from Miss Liger's body, it would be her. Reaching her underground lab from the forest wasn't difficult. I pictured the place in my mind, and the mist responded, forming a stone staircase from the grove that tunneled and wound to her lab's entrance. I stepped gingerly down the pitch-black staircase, ducking to avoid crumbling mounds of fresh, moist dirt or overhanging roots. Eventually, I saw a flickering light from around the next bend. It was a glow bulb, buzzing with electric light through a casing of glass, fixed in the corner of a stone wall at the end of the tunnel. Embedded in the wall was a narrow metal door, with no handle on the outside and a viewing slot that was closed. I reached up to knock on the door. Before my fist touched the metal, the viewing slot slid open. A pair of bloodshot eyes stared back at me. Well, one was bloodshot. Her left one, a green eye with a thin ring of fiery red lining the pupil. Her right one was a fake, brass-colored, and vaguely resembling a chameleon's eye, bulging 
with a small hole dead center standing in for a pupil. Regardless, both eyes had an accusatory look when they saw me. Why do you enjoy wasting my time? The owner of the eyes said. Your pain is my pleasure, Quinn. The viewing slot shut, and the door opened inwards with a muffled squeak. Quinn was a short human, barely five feet tall. Wavy red hair and freckles, a smallish, upturned nose, and large ears bedecked with far too many earrings. A pair of soot-stained goggles were strapped to her forehead. She wore ragged overalls with a red tunic, cuffed leather boots and gloves. Floating above her head was a brass orb the size of a grapefruit, sporting a round, red eye and a series of fan blades spinning around its midsection to keep it afloat. Serious question, Quinn said. Seventeen projects. Classified material, time-sensitive, potentially world-altering discoveries to be made, and you interrupt my work because some old biddy kicked the bucket. I'm sorry, Quinn, but this is urgent. Urgent! Ha! Urgent, he says. You wouldn't be saying that if you knew what I was working on. My work pushes the boundaries of science to the bleeding edge. Toast. The little orb above Quinn blurted out suddenly. I squinted at it. Did that contraption just say toast? Alzarian servant drone. Salvaged it from some ruins up in Roth. Circuits are fried, only says toast. It's a work in progress. Come along. Quinn led me through her lab. A massive warehouse, packed with shelves, countertops, workbenches, containers, cauldrons. Everything practically bursting with some substance or another, either inside or on top of it. Clockwork knickknacks, weapon parts, greasy tools, books thick as treasure chests. Vials and beakers full of squirming gelatin. A strange cloud of sparkling gas in a glass cage, skulking about like a specter. On one table was what appeared to be an automated metal arm, actively in the process of building itself. Above our heads were a throng of paper lanterns giving off an amber light. Tiny propellers moved them to and fro, and seemed to follow Quinn wherever she went. There was a winding staircase leading up to a small loft, where I could hear soft wind instruments playing. A closer inspection revealed a strange device with a spinning black disc. The music was coming out of a horn attached to it, but I could see no instruments nor musicians anywhere. Another salvage? I pointed to the music device. Quinn snickered, then raised a finger. Project One, she said. She stopped abruptly. Oh, before I forget, these are for you. Isolde just approved them. Quinn dug into a pocket on her overalls, placing two items into my hands. The first was a small silver pouch with a black cord drawstring. The second was a solid black ring with no stone or markings on it. I opened the silver pouch. There was black powder inside, not unlike gunpowder. Fine-grade raven dust, Quinn explained. 
Use it for instant communication with the mist, or anyone you deem necessary during your outing. I took a pinch of raven dust, rolled it around in my fingers. As I did, the dust congealed into a paste. It expanded, until soon I was using my entire hand to roll the black paste around. Suddenly, the paste sprouted black feathers, bony legs and claws, a black beak. A live raven now sat in the palm of my hands. It jumped up onto my finger and looked up at me, expectantly. I paused, but only for a moment. I had learned to expect the unexpected in the ebon mist, especially when Quinn was involved. How does it work? How does it work? The raven said back to me, in my exact tone and cadence. Quinn smiled. Just like that. Now close your eyes and try picturing me in your mind. I did so, keeping the image of Quinn's face in mind as I closed my eyes. I heard a low warble and felt the bird's weight leave my hand. I opened my eyes. The raven had appeared on Quinn's finger in an instant. How does it work? The raven relayed to Quinn. Quinn winked at me. Then she smashed the bird between her hands. I was shocked until I saw the bird had reverted back to paste and then back to powder. Remarkable. You think that's something, try the ring. Quinn paused, looking at her hands. Scorch it, now I gotta change my gloves. Tentatively, I slid the ring over my right ring finger. It felt lighter than it looked, so light I could forget it was there. The smooth, sheer black of the ring seemed to suck up the light of the room, like it had been forged from the void of space. I looked at the ring on my open hand, waiting for something to happen. I was about to ask for instructions when I closed my hand. An ebon dagger appeared instantly in my grip. It looked like it had been cut from obsidian. The blade was intricately cut in elegant swoops, while the grip of the hilt seemed perfectly contoured to my hand. The phantom ring has multiple settings, Quinn said, digging out fresh gloves from a nearby tool chest. Dagger, longsword, and crossbow. The crossbow generates its own bolts from the mist. Just focus on the one you want to use. When you let go, the weapon disappears. As long as you have the ring, you're never unarmed. I tried to picture a longsword, then a crossbow. Sure enough, the ring obliged, changing between each weapon in the blink of an eye. I opened my hand, and the crossbow vanished only to appear once more when I closed my fist. I grimaced. I don't know what my relationship with death was like before I joined the Ebon Mist, but it was no friend of mine now. So far I had avoided taking lives to complete my missions for Isolde. I had deluded myself into thinking she would not put me in such a position. I could fight well enough but I was far from exceptional. Grace and stealth had always eluded me. Furthermore, I did not think I had the stomach for it. It was enough to talk to the dead, 
to consort with spirits already parted. Deep down, though, I knew it would come to this eventually. Isolde had said as much to me when I first joined her cause. We're in the business of death, Vondaire. Stopping it, dealing it, meeting the end in some form or another. There are forces at work in Exeser, and in worlds beyond the mist. Mortals, frights, and others yearn for power, more than the laws that bind the multiverse allow. We alone maintain the balance. We must, whatever the cost. I grit my teeth at the memory. We maintain the balance. But Isolde wasn't the one wearing this ring, was she? Quinn turned to face me. Well? I'm... impressed, I said. Quinn rolled her eyes. How trite. Of course you're impressed. This is me we're talking about. I belch impressive. In response... I took out the Alzarian chip and brandished it in front of her. Prove it. Quinn snatched the chip from my hands. She turned it over in her fingers, examining every indent and etching. Her metal chameleon eye spun around excitedly. Slowly, she started to giggle. Ho! She laughed. Ho! What is it? Quinn met my eyes, grinning from ear to ear. That body you sent me, the old woman, was she by chance a follower of Aiden? Yes. Quinn cackled. She kissed the chip, put it into her pocket, then crept further into the lab, curling a beckoning finger at me. Come along, Von Der. I think I know what she was running from. Echoes of Exeser is written, produced, and performed by Nick Walker. Sound effects courtesy of GarageBand. Questions, comments, email us at echoesofexeser at gmail.com.